Welcome to the Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care podcast. Why does this topic matter? One person in the United States dies from a drug overdose every six minutes. We as healthcare providers must do better to treat addiction, prevent overdoses, and improve the lives of our patients and their families. This podcast is designed to provide you with simple and evidence-based information on substance use disorders that you can use to take better care of your patients on your next shift. Hello everyone, greetings and salutations. Welcome back to the Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care podcast. Dr. Casey Grover here once again as your host. I just survived 10 emergency department shifts in the past 12 days, so I am glad to have some time to put together another episode. I also got some new audio equipment, so hopefully the quality of the audio is better than in past episodes too. This episode will be on the topic of medications for alcohol use disorder, and we'll start with a few clarifying points before we dive into the meat and potatoes of this episode. First, it's important to know that medications for alcohol use disorder are not medications to help a person with alcohol dependence or alcohol withdrawal. These are medications to prevent relapse. For patients who are dependent or in withdrawal, they first need medical detoxification before they are a candidate for these medications. And I'll give you a short case as an example. A 65-year-old male presents to the emergency department for alcohol intoxication requesting treatment. He is found to be intoxicated with his laboratory study showing signs of regular and heavy alcohol use. He is able to provide a history of drinking every morning as he gets shaky when he wakes up. He is interested in receiving treatment for his alcohol use disorder. He is admitted to the chemical dependency service for three days where he undergoes supervised medical detoxification in the inpatient setting to make sure that the medications to manage alcohol withdrawal are working and that the patient does not develop severe or life-threatening alcohol withdrawal. The patient does well as an inpatient and is discharged on a gabapentin taper along with diazepam. When he follows up as an outpatient after discharge with the local chemical dependency clinic, he and his doctor sit down to discuss medications for alcohol use disorder to prevent him from returning to drinking. Second, you might be wondering, why are we talking about medications for alcohol use disorder on an emergency medicine and acute care podcast? These really aren't medications that we use. And the answer is yes, you're right. These really aren't emergency department or inpatient medications yet. But depending on your practice, they might be. In areas where there aren't any addiction medicine providers, the emergency department and inpatient providers may be the only providers with any experience with addiction to treat patients. Or if patients are uninsured or underinsured, they may only have access to care through the emergency department. So you, as an emergency department provider or acute care provider, may consider giving patients with alcohol use disorder a prescription for one of these medications to help prevent relapse until they can follow up with their primary care doctor or even a telemedicine addiction service. And if you still think that these medications don't have a place in your emergency department or acute care practice, at least you'll be informed about the medications when you take care of a patient who is on them. One other thought on starting medications for alcohol use disorder in the emergency department and acute care setting. Primary care doctors may not know that their patient has an alcohol use disorder or how to use medications to treat alcohol use disorder. 
So if we start patients in the emergency department and acute care setting on medications to treat alcohol use disorder, they can serve as a signal to the primary care provider that the patient has a problem that needs continuing care. And if the medications are helping the patient to reduce or to stop drinking, the primary care physician could continue them since they have demonstrated efficacy for the patient. This actually happens a lot with buprenorphine. Patients get induced on buprenorphine in the emergency department and then present to primary care in follow-up asking to be continued on their buprenorphine. The work of starting the medication has already been done, so it's very easy for the primary care physician to just continue them at the follow-up appointment. So, with that, let's jump right into this episode. As always, we're going to keep this podcast evidence-based. The content from this episode comes from two papers. First, we have a paper from JAMA in 2018 titled, Diagnosis and Pharmacotherapy of Alcohol Use Disorder, a Review. And this is by Henry Kranzler and Michael Soika. And second, we have a paper from Mayo Clinic Proceedings in 2020 titled, Evidence-Based Pharmacotherapies for Alcohol Use Disorder, Clinical Pearls. And the lead author on this paper is Jeremiah Fairbanks. We'll get started with a little background on alcohol use. An alcohol use disorder is defined as a problematic pattern of alcohol use accompanied by clinically significant impairment or distress. And we covered the criteria of how to define and assess the severity of an alcohol use disorder in episode six of this podcast. As we know from previous episodes, substance use disorders are undertreated and alcohol use disorder is no exception. The JAMA article notes that only 8.3% of people with problematic alcohol use receive treatment. And along this same line, medications for treating alcohol use disorder are underprescribed. One study cited in this JAMA paper noted that less than 9% of people who needed treatment for an alcohol use disorder received a prescription of any of the FDA-approved medications for alcohol use disorder. One other interesting point on the topic of medications for alcohol use disorder before we start reviewing the medications themselves. The traditional goal of treating alcohol use disorder is abstinence from alcohol. However, in some cases, the goal can be to reduce drinking without requiring abstinence. Many patients desire to reduce rather than to stop alcohol intake, and a reduction in alcohol intake can be associated with a reduction in alcohol-related problems. This is obviously a very complicated decision to make for us as a provider, namely to recommend abstinence versus reduction. But it's important for us as ED and acute care providers to know that not all patients being treated for alcohol use disorder will have a treatment plan that involves complete abstinence. Let's move on to the medications. There are four FDA approved medications for alcohol use disorder. The JAMA article by Kranzler and Soika has a fantastic table outlining each of these four medications, and we'll go through that with a few additional notes peppered in from the Fairbanks article. Our first medication is disulfiram, also known as antabuse. The indication is the management of chronic alcohol-using patients who want to remain in a state of enforced sobriety. In terms of the mechanism of action, disulfiram inhibits alcohol dehydrogenase, which is the enzyme that breaks down acetaldehyde. Acetaldehyde is a toxic metabolite of alcohol, which makes people feel sick. So, 
By blocking this enzyme, disulfiram makes the consumption of alcohol result in a physically unpleasant experience with nausea, vomiting, flushing, sweating, and palpitations. The dosing of disulfiram is 250 milligrams to 500 milligrams given once daily. Now, how well does it work? Studies on disulfiram are somewhat disappointing. It turns out that it really only works when patients are supervised in taking it. If people are not committed to sobriety, then they just won't take it. But if they have someone who makes sure that they take it daily, such as a spouse, then it can be effective. In terms of side effects, the most common side effect of disulfiram is drowsiness, occurring in up to 8% of patients. More severe side effects, such as hepatitis or neuropathy, are rare. It's also important to know that when people drink alcohol while taking it, they can experience a disulfiram reaction. This is actually how the medication is meant to work, by causing unpleasant physical sensations when alcohol is consumed. Common symptoms, as I mentioned before, include flushing, nausea, vomiting, diaphoresis, tachycardia, and chest pain. However, with increased alcohol consumption, this reaction can be extremely severe or life-threatening, causing respiratory depression, arrhythmias, congestive heart failure, seizures, cardiovascular collapse, and death. So if patients want to reduce drinking rather than stop drinking, disulfiram is not a good choice. And I saw a cardiovascular collapse when someone drank heavily on disulfiram once, and it was really scary just how sick and hypotensive and bradycardic it made the patient I took care of. In terms of precautions or reasons to avoid disulfiram, the main one is liver disease, as the drug is metabolized in the liver. Additionally, any patients with underlying cardiovascular disease or active alcohol use are not good candidates for disulfiram. And the cost per month is $104 for 30 tablets. A few other notes on the disulfiram reaction. Patients must avoid exposure with all alcohol to avoid the disulfiram reaction, including mouthwash, cooking wine, or even kombucha. Given that patients may still have some residual alcohol in their system after a binge, it is recommended to wait two to three days after the last drink before starting disulfiram to avoid the disulfiram reaction. And disulfiram lasts up to two weeks in the body, so a patient should wait two weeks after stopping disulfiram before resuming alcohol consumption. Our second medication here is oral naltrexone, and the indication for oral naltrexone is alcohol use disorder. In terms of the mechanism of action, naltrexone is a non-selective antagonist of mu, kappa, and delta opioid receptors. It reduces dopamine activity in the reward centers of the brain and therefore decreases the dopamine-mediated rewarding effects of alcohol. With less dopamine released in the reward centers of the brain when alcohol is consumed, alcohol consumption decreases as it's less pleasurable. It's dosed at 50 milligrams per day. And in terms of how well it works, naltrexone is modestly effective at reducing alcohol consumption. It decreases the risk of a return to drinking after abstinence, and that's a number needed to treat of 20 to prevent one return to drinking. It also decreases the risk of binge drinking, and that's a number needed to treat of 12 to prevent one episode of binge drinking. 
In terms of side effects, common side effects of oral naltrexone include somnolence, nausea, vomiting, decreased appetite, abdominal pain, and insomnia. In terms of precautions or reasons to avoid oral naltrexone, the main one is active opioid use. Since naltrexone is an opioid receptor antagonist, you must make sure patients are not dependent on opioids as when you start oral naltrexone, you could precipitate opiate withdrawal in someone who is dependent on opioids. Now, it's important to also note that oral naltrexone can be very helpful in reducing cravings for alcohol. And the cost per month is $108 for 30 tablets. One last note on oral naltrexone. You can also consider starting 25 milligrams daily for seven days, then increase to 50 milligrams daily to reduce the risk of side effects. Our third FDA-approved medication for alcohol use disorder is long-acting injectable naltrexone, also known as Vivitrol. The indication is alcohol use disorder, specifically in patients who are able to abstain from alcohol in the outpatient setting. In terms of the mechanism of action, it's the same as oral naltrexone. The long-acting injectable form is designed to increase medication adherence by being given once monthly injections rather than requiring the patient to take it daily. It's dosed at 380 milligrams given intramuscularly once monthly. Now, how well does it work? In studies, long-acting injectable naltrexone reduces binge drinking more than placebo. The largest randomized controlled trial of long-acting injectable naltrexone looked at people in an alcohol treatment program. It showed that people with alcohol use disorder decreased the number of days of binge drinking from 19 days per month to 6 days per month in the placebo group. That means they got all of the interventions of the alcohol treatment program and then placebo. In the naltrexone treatment group, they decreased from 19 days per month of binge drinking to three days per month of binge drinking. And that again is all of the interventions of the alcohol treatment program plus intramuscular naltrexone. So it works more than placebo, but then again, being in an alcohol treatment program works too. In terms of the side effects, the side effects are essentially the same as oral naltrexone. However, because it's given as an injection, you can also get injection site reactions, such as pain at the injection site or swelling at the injection site. In terms of the precautions or reasons to avoid this medication, it's the same again as oral naltrexone. You want to avoid it in anyone who is dependent on opioids. And the cost per month is $1,366 for a single intramuscular injection given monthly. Our final medication in the group of FDA-approved medications for alcohol use disorder is acamprosate, also known as Camprol. The indication is maintenance of abstinence from alcohol in patients with alcohol use disorder. The mechanism of action is a little unclear. Acamprosate is a GABA agonist and a weak NMDA and glutamate antagonist. We don't quite know how it helps with alcohol use disorder. The dosing is also a little weird. It's 1,998 milligrams per day, given as 666 milligrams three times daily. And this is a little weird since tablets only come in a dose of 333 milligrams. So it's basically two tablets three times a day. How well does it work? 
Acamprosate is modestly effective in reducing the risk of return to drinking with a number needed to treat of 12 to prevent one return to drinking, but it is not effective at preventing binge drinking. The number needed to treat to reduce any drinking is nine. In terms of side effects, the main one is diarrhea. As far as precautions or reasons to avoid acamprosate, it's mainly renal disease as the drug is metabolized by the kidneys. Also, anyone with hypercalcemia should not receive acamprosate. One other thing to consider is that acamprosate is not metabolized in the liver and therefore can be very useful in patients with significant liver disease. This medication is also particularly helpful in people who drink related distress and it helps to improve and reverse the disruptive effects of alcohol on sleep. The cost per month is $270 for 180 tablets. And one last note on acamprosate. It's recommended that acamprosate is started after a period of sobriety. It's generally considered okay to start after 10 to 14 days of abstinence from alcohol. Well, that concludes our section on FDA-approved medications for alcohol use disorder. And both articles go on to describe the non-FDA-approved medications for alcohol use disorder. Both articles review nalmefine, baclofen, gabapentin, and tapiramate. Considering that I've never heard of nalmefine, and I don't even know if I pronounced it correctly, and how infrequently we use baclofen and tapiramate, I'll leave it to you to look those up in these articles. But since it seems like gabapentin works for essentially everything, and we use it very frequently in the emergency department and the acute care setting, I'll cover it in this episode. The indication, and again, it's not FDA approved, but the indication here is that gabapentin can be used for alcohol use disorder. The mechanism of action is slightly unclear, but gabapentin appears to potentiate the effects of GABA in the brain. It's dosed at 600 to 1800 milligrams per day divided TID. Now, how well does it work? In one study, gabapentin at 900 milligrams per day increased the rate of abstinence from alcohol from 4 to 11% over placebo. Gabapentin at 1800 milligrams per day increased the rate of abstinence from alcohol from 4% to 17% over placebo. Furthermore, Gabapentin at 900 milligrams per day decreased the frequency of binge drinking from 78% to 71% over placebo, and gabapentin at 1800 milligrams per day decreased the frequency of binge drinking from 78% to 55% over placebo. In terms of side effects, patients may experience dizziness, somnolence, or ataxia. And as far as reasons to avoid this medication or precautions, it's really just renal disease as gabapentin is excreted renally. One other thing to consider is that gabapentin is useful because it can also be helpful in managing mild alcohol withdrawal. And the cost per month is $150 for 90 tablets. One brief point here before we move on. Disulfiram cannot be used when a person is drinking and acamprosate should only be started after a period of sobriety. This makes naltrexone and gabapentin good choices for when a person is still drinking. So if you in the emergency department want to start one of these medications for a patient, naltrexone and gabapentin may be a better choice given that they can be started right away 
even when a person is still intoxicated. Or you may have a discussion with the patient and decide that they are committed to sobriety and you can give them a script for disulfiram or a camprosate to be started on a certain day in the future once alcohol has been out of their system for a given amount of time. Now, if you're like me, you're probably wondering how fast do these medications work and how do we know if they're actually working? Well, I had to take a brief detour up to up to date for this answer and found the answer in an article by Richard Sates entitled Approach to Treating Alcohol Use Disorder. It turns out that these medications may take several weeks to cause noticeable changes in alcohol consumption. When assessing success, it depends on the goals for alcohol consumption set by the patient and their doctor. A goal of complete abstinence may take longer to achieve than a goal of going from five drinks per night to two drinks per night. Furthermore, when the goal is complete abstinence, it's also important to realize that an overall decrease in alcohol consumption may be still viewed as a success rather than a failure. As an example, if a person has an episode of binge drinking after two months of successful treatment with oral naltrexone, we don't necessarily consider this a failure as the patient has had two months alcohol-free. As long as they stay on the naltrexone and go back to an overall trend of abstinence, it is likely still beneficial to continue the naltrexone as it has reduced their intake of alcohol significantly. And I'll compare these medications to buprenorphine here again. We start people on buprenorphine for opiate use disorder all the time, and usually their opiate use decreases as the buprenorphine prevents, in addition to other things, cravings to use opioids. If a patient relapses, we just start them back on their buprenorphine rather than considering buprenorphine a failure. It's the same with these medications for alcohol use disorder. If patients resume drinking and the medication help them before their relapse, we can just restart them again. Back to our two main articles for this podcast. The JAMA article concludes with a reminder that combining medications with a psychosocial treatment program is the most effective way to treat alcohol use disorder. And we saw this with the data on long-acting injectable naltrexone. As a reminder, the study on long-acting injectable naltrexone showed that people with alcohol use disorder decreased the number of days of binge drinking from 19 days per month to six days per month with the treatment program alone. When they added in the naltrexone, the number of days of binge drinking per month decreased from 19 days per month to three days per month. And again, that's the alcohol treatment program, which is a psychosocial intervention, plus the IM naltrexone. And one last final point from the JAMA article, which is how long should people be on these medications for alcohol use disorder? There really isn't any empiric data, so the authors recommend at least six months of therapy, and then the provider should reevaluate the need for continued therapy. And if needed, the medications can be continued indefinitely. Both articles provided a fantastic summary of the therapeutic options for alcohol use disorder, so let's wrap this episode up with some take-home points. Number one. Disulfiram is a medication that causes an unpleasant reaction when a person consumes alcohol. It works best when people are supervised in taking it and should be avoided in anyone who may continue drinking alcohol. Number two, oral naltrexone reduces dopamine release in the brain when alcohol is consumed. 
It can reduce cravings for alcohol and decrease alcohol intake, but should be avoided in patients on chronic opiate therapy. Oral naltrexone is great for the emergency department or acute care setting as it can be started while the patient is still drinking and can be given as a discharge prescription for oral medication. Number three, long-acting injectable naltrexone also reduces dopamine release in the brain when alcohol is consumed. It can also reduce cravings for alcohol and decrease alcohol intake and also should be avoided in patients on chronic opiate therapy. Compliance with this medication is higher because it's given as a monthly injection, but it's definitely the most expensive of all of the options we discussed. It's also not available in many emergency departments, including mine. Number four, a camprosate acts in various ways on the receptors in the brain that are involved with how alcohol causes psychoactive effects. It works best to prevent returning to drinking after a period of abstinence. And number five, Gabapentin is not FDA approved for alcohol use disorder, but it works in the brain to potentiate the effects of GABA and can reduce alcohol intake, particularly when it is dosed at higher dosing ranges. It is very useful in the emergency department or acute care setting as it can be started while the patient is still drinking. It also can be helpful in managing mild alcohol withdrawal. And that wraps up this episode. I hope you were able to get a better understanding of the various medications for alcohol use disorder and may consider offering them to patients in your practice. Thanks for listening, and don't forget, treating substance use disorders saves lives. 